Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Fleur Visser is a senior lecturer in geography at the University of Worcester. In previous posts, Dr. Visser developed an interest in remote sensing, otherwise known as Earth observation, and is currently applying remote sensing techniques to map submerged aquatic vegetation and algae in shallow river systems. Dr. Visser represents the Education and Training Committee of the Remote Sensing and Photogrammy Society, and she's therefore passionate about looking for more ways to help teachers to use remote sensing in schools. Today we'll be generally talking about the application of remote sensing. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Visser. Thank you for inviting me and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I can uh, talk a bit about remote sensing and how this can be uh, used, for example, by teachers in their, in their teaching. Can we start with a basic definition of what remote sensing is? I like to use a very simple definition uh, for remote sensing, which is obtaining information about a surface from a distance. I find that as soon as you make a more detailed uh, definition, then you start excluding uh, bits of, of remote sensing that um, yeah that don't fit in that definition anymore because there are so many things to remote sensing. It's got so many different aspects and there's so many different types of remote sensing. So it is it's very difficult to capture that in a single um, in a single definition. Can I ask how many different types of remote sensing data collection are there? Actually I'd rather um, talk about when I when I try to describe what remote sensing is, I talk about sort of six basic concepts that it consists of. Uh, the most important one is, uh, of course, the target. What are you interested in? What are you trying to obtain information from with remote sensing? That is the that is the sort of basic concept that you have to keep in mind. There can be anything. It can be glaciers, something that we'll probably be talking about later. Uh, can be urbanization, extent of cities, uh, can be deforestation is a very popular topic, I guess, that, that for which remote sensing is being used. Uh, but it can also be more detailed things. Uh, myself, I look at uh, submerged aquatic plants. I try to identify specific submerged species from, from, from river systems. Um, so, yeah, you can look at uh, all different scales and you can apply remote sensing to all these different scales, different targets, different scales. So when you identify your target, if you know what you want to look at, then you need to identify a sensor that will be able to help you observe your target. Uh, that sensor then needs to be based on a platform, which is also a very important concept in remote sensing. You've got your sensor that needs to be based on a platform. And I think most people are probably familiar with uh, satellite remote sensing, um, so satellite platforms. On those satellite sensors, usually more than one sensor is based on, on a single satellite. Uh, but it could also be uh, platforms much closer to the ground, such as drones and something I work with myself um, and my colleagues here in Worcester. Or even even smaller platforms like a, a a microscope can also be described as as a form of uh, of remote sensing. That sensor on your platform then uh, produces images, and that that is a sort of one of the basic things: the production of image data. Usually, remote sensing works with images, images of your target, and those images are produced by the sensors sensing electromagnetic radiation. 
And that's another important concept, electromagnetic radiation that comes in a whole range of different wavelengths. And pretty much all of those wavelengths uh, that electromagnetic radiation comes with uh, can be used for, for some sort of remote sensing. Different targets, different surfaces will respond with different types of electromagnetic radiation in, in different ways. Um, and that interaction and how the surface interact will allow us to obtain information uh, from those surfaces about those surfaces um, when that uh, radiation is detected by a sensor and then converted into into image data. That then requires some kind of image interpretation, and that's more than just looking at the image. I guess it could be just a very qualitative interpretation, like you do with a normal photo camera. You you make a photo. That photo records how much uh, blue, green, and red light is uh, reflected from the surface you're interested from your target that produces then uh, an image a photo and we can look at that image and interpret that and think oh that looks quite nice or um, there's some some issues with that uh, with a plant that I, that I made a photo of uh, so that's a very basic qualitative interpretation but you can use uh, much more complex much more uh, advanced levels of um, quantitative uh, interpretation of the images and that is what uh, a lot of remote sensing scientists do and that's how we can derive uh, really useful information from our former images. So those six concepts together, your target, uh, your sensor that observes the target, the platform that the sensor is based on, uh, the electromagnetic radiation that's reflected from your target and picked up by the sensor and is then converted into uh, the image and that image is then uh, interpreted in, in, in some way using some kind of uh, image interpretation. Those, all those concepts together form what I would call remote sensing. I often actually prefer to use the term earth observation particularly being a geographer because i think the term earth observation is a little bit more charismatic and people who are not familiar with with remote sensing will find it easier to uh, understand or to appreciate what earth observation means as opposed to remote sensing so um that's a term that i often try to use when i when i do sessions for for teachers in schools Hopefully, from my previous answer to your question of what, what remote sensing is, it, it became clear that it's really broad field and that there are actually very many different types of remote sensing, depending on what kind of uh, electromagnetic radiation, what kind of reflectance from your target uh, you're looking at, you're trying to observe with your sensor. So what sensor you use, uh, but also what platform those sensors are based on, whether they're satellite sensors or drone sensors or even uh, ground sensors, uh, like perhaps terrestrial laser scanners. Yes, there are just an uh, incredibly wide range of different types of, uh, of remote sensing. So uh, I, I can't really give a, a specific number uh, as an answer to your question. How can this be applied to, for example, glaciers in Antarctica? Glaciers are definitely an interesting topic, and specifically for teachers, uh, it's something they teach about. So it's good for them to know how remote sensing can be applied to look at, at glaciers. Well, there's a whole range of different types of remote sensing that can be used uh, to uh, observe and monitor glaciers. Uh, that goes from very basic uh, visible light, so um, electromagnetic radiation in the red, green and blue regions, how that is reflected from the glacier surface, which basically produces uh, color photographs like you would uh, get from a normal, uh, normal camera. From that, you can see how the glacier uh, changes in position. Some other basic things you might be able to see is different difference in color, but particularly the, the extent of the glacier is something that can be easily seen from basic visible light, uh, also called optical remote sensing. There are, however, 
further wavelengths that you can use. For example, a short wave infrared, if I'm correct, uh, allows you to look at more specifically at the presence of, of, of clear ice. And uh, radar remote sensing is, for example, used to look at uh, flow velocities and, and uh, the actual thicknesses of the glaciers. So there's a whole range of different types of, of remote sensing that can be used to, to look at glaciers. When I do practical exercises with a teacher and something that teachers uh, will be able to apply in their classroom as well is is make use of, for example, Landsat data. Landsat is a series of satellite missions that have been sent out in space since the 1970s. So these Landsat satellites have been producing data for, for quite some time and that allows us to look at changes over time, for example, changes over time of the, of the glacier extent. This particular type of satellite produces basically color photographs, uh, RGB, red, green, and blue images. Uh, but it also produces uh, imagery in the near-infrared and the short-wave infrared, which uh, can be used to better identify the extent of, of glaciers. Um, so that is to look at changes over time is, is a very useful type of data to use. And the good thing about this data is that it's freely available. So teachers would have access to that uh, to show it to the, uh, to, to the students. And there is a whole raft of um, online tools available that you can use to view this kind of imagery. Um, however, there are also other types of uh, remote sensing that can provide us with other information about the glacier because just the extent of the glacier does not necessarily fully inform us about what is going on with the glaciers, for example, how they respond to climate change. Uh, for that, we also want to know about the thickness, how 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 much mass, uh, glacier mass is actually there. Um, so that is something that you can, for example, use uh, radar remote sensing for. And there's actually some uh, laser uh, remote sensing as well. Some ISAT-2 is currently out in space. It's a, it's a satellite that sends out laser signals um, that allow us to very accurately and very in very high detail observe the uh, the shape and the and the size of 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 glacier masses. Can you explain how remote sensing might have been used with Larsen B? Yes, a large part of the Larsen B ice shelf collapsed in in 2017, and looking back at this using. Uh, especially Landsat and Aster data, I believe, uh, researchers were able to identify how cracks started developing in the uh, in the ice shelf quite some time before the actual event happened. So, um, and they also were able to uh, understand in, in much more detail how that sort of processes worked and how um, sort of different combinations of different types of ice actually uh, slowed down the development of such cracks. So, using the satellite data going back in time before an actual event, people are now using the satellite data able to better understand the processes that are taking place in, in these otherwise remote environments where you cannot easily get to normally uh, to to uh, do more detailed investigations. So for that reason, uh, remote sensing is, is very useful to look at, um, at glaciers. Uh, but also in glaciers in mountains, uh, we've been able to um, identify the, the, the changes in, in the extent and the, and the size of, of glaciers. And how might remote sensing be used in an urban setting? Like in for, for that, like for the glaciers, in an urban setting, there are lots and lots of different ways remote sensing can be used as well. Um, historically, uh, when there was uh, mostly coarser resolution image data available only, the 
applications of, of remote sensing for, for urban purposes was mostly limited to looking at changes in urban extent and looking at urban sprawl, uh, that kind of observations. However, with the much higher resolution data that's become available these days, more easily available these days, um, we, can, we can look at urban environments in, in much more detail as well. So we can now also, rather than just looking at the, the change in urban versus rural, we can actually look within urban environment at, at different urban features, such as uh, the presence of roads, the presence of buildings, uh, and also the shape and size of those buildings can be can be observed using remote sensing data. So that provides a, a lot of interesting information that can be used for all sorts of applications. It's crazy to think of growing up without Google Earth nowadays, um, which was only released in 2001, I believe. Um, what technology do you think we'll be using in another 20 years? Definitely. Um, Google Earth has made remote sensing accessible to everybody. Um, so that's a, an incredible development. But it's it's still different, I guess. It's, it's still just uh, qualitatively uh, observing the world around us and you don't actually do any uh, specific analysis on the data as a user of Google Earth. It's possible now that there's a more advanced uh, versions of, of Google Earth. Uh, you can actually do uh, analysis as well, but most uh, general users won't be doing that. Uh, but yeah, where will this then go in, in the future? I guess it's becoming more and more immersed, uh, immersive experiences and, and uh, everything is becoming more 3D. So I guess the remote sensing and image analysis will also um, will have to deal with that kind of three-dimensional data um, and how that's going to what that's going to look like exactly um, I, I don't know but um, that's um, definitely something that's going to going to happen high resolution satellite sensors um, have allowed a high thematic and geometric level of image what does that mean we are now able to differentiate between more different types of surfaces from images than we would have been in the past. So that's that sort of thematic level that you that you mention. This is to some extent due to the different and uh, more developed image analysis techniques that there are, but also because the 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 spectral information that's collected by the sensors has has improved and allows us to differentiate better between different surface types. For example, the geometric level is also improved because of the higher spatial resolution of the data, the more the more detail we can uh, obtain from our data. Um, so that allows us, for example, in urban environments to um, to actually uh, delineate the boundaries of, of, of individual buildings and even individual uh, people can be uh, detected from very high resolution image data. So that has uh, greatly improved. And based on that, we can then map uh, our environment in, in much more detail from the from the image data that we've got available. Am I right in thinking that there are different airborne sensors, for example, traffic, spaceborne and ground sensors for surveying and monitoring cities? Yes, broadly, the spaceborne sensors have the largest what you call footprint. They, they in one image, cover the largest area of on, on the ground. And as a result of that, they are mostly used to look at the extent of, of, of urban developments, for example. Uh, airborne sensors will be able to provide more detail. And of course, particularly uh, drone sensors will be able to, uh, sensors based on drones will be able to provide very, very high resolution data. 
The problem with drones, though, is that uh, you can't easily use them over urban environment uh, for for legal for legal reasons. But uh, they are definitely, um, if you can use them in situations that you can use them, they they provide much higher resolution data than than that's uh, obtained from from satellites. What might this data be used for? There are also various ground-based sensors, and I guess the cars that Google uses to produce their street view images are an example of that. Um, they uh, allow you to look at a, a much more oblique angle, and um, in the case of bridges, for example, they can actually uh, go underneath bridges and, and look what's underneath there and image what's underneath there. So that allows us to provide a full three-dimensional view of, of what you're looking at that is not possible from uh, a satellite because they are in a fixed position above the target and in many cases can't even look under under different angles. So uh, that stops us from having that more fully 3D view. What are the future limitations for remote sensing, in your opinion? At this point in time, I actually think that cost might be one of the lesser constraints for um, remote sensing and the development of remote sensing. I, I actually think that things like legal issues with the ever-increasing resolution of data and, and um the higher access that vehicles like drones have to to areas that could otherwise not be reached probably cause more problems. And we are definitely not allowed to fly everywhere with our drones uh, for legal reasons. At the same time, perhaps also political reasons are prohibiting certain types of remote sensing to take place that might be very useful, sort of the, the more intermediate uh, unmanned systems that fly higher than, than normal drones um, and for that reason could cover larger areas at very high resolution. It's it's not necessarily possible to let those uh, move around because they will be able to view over country boundaries and, and politically that's, uh, of course, in many cases not acceptable. So that, that sort of constraints are, are actually perhaps more limiting for what we can do at the moment because the cost of, of these things are not necessarily very high, uh, but it's just that we're not allowed to do them for, for these reasons. There's probably also still some limitations to sensor development because uh, there's a lot of things that can be done with or that we would like to be doing with drones, but that we still can't do because the same quality sensors that we have on satellites uh, are not uh, available yet for deployment on drones. Uh, for example, um, a lot of radar type sensors and hyperspectral sensors, the, the same quality uh, of data cannot yet be collected from drones as we can collect from, from satellites. So in the development is ongoing, but we're still not there yet. And, and if, if that data would have been available, then, then we would be able to, uh, to collect uh, very interesting data and at much higher resolutions and, and under conditions that would normally not be possible with satellites, for example, because of the presence of clouds. So those, yeah, the, the sensor development, I think, is, is still uh, lagging behind a bit, uh, especially when it comes to the development of, uh, of platforms, which is, uh, of course, we can do lots and lots of, uh, of things with drones these days already. And then, of course, there's the interpretation of the imagery. Um, there's so much imagery there, but to get that information from those images that we are interested in is, is still not uh, necessarily uh, very easy. When we look at a photograph, we can very quickly interpret that photograph. Our, our brains are capable of doing that. But to let a computer obtain that same information from an image is, in most cases, not uh, at all possible yet. Of course, there's, there's great developments taking place at the moment with uh, artificial intelligence, and, and there are 
very many directions that we can explore with that um, to help us further improve our image analysis skills, but we, we're definitely not there yet. I think in many cases, uh, the human brain and, and human visual processing capacity is, is still uh, much higher than that, uh, what we can achieve with computers. How does remote sensing tie in with urban sustainability? For the assessment of urban sustainability, I think satellites, again, are, are an ideal tool just some very basic examples. For example, if we wanted to see how much uh, roof space is available for the implementation of uh, solar voltaic cells, satellite data is there. We've got LIDAR data that allows us to calculate roof space, uh, roof aspect, the direction that the roofs are facing. And based on that, we can assess, uh, for example, quite quickly um, how much um, energy might we might be able to derive from from the roof space if we uh, put put the solar voltaic cells on there. Another example is sort of the assessment of uh, urban green space. Of course, that's having urban green space is is very important for our well-being because we probably noticed that quite a lot uh, in in the current times if we want to go out it's it's nice to be able to go out in a in a green environment and there have also been indications that it's it's very good for mental health to have uh, a lot of green space around you so for those reasons uh, again um, remote sensing can be used to assess the, the presence of green space and that's something that i use as a an exercise with uh, with teachers to uh, to show how you very quickly can and very quite easily uh, can calculate the presence of green space from satellite imagery and there's there's some uh, very useful online tools available that you can do that with uh, without having to install any uh, specific specialist software to do that some of the generally available data, the Landsat data, but also uh, the newer and slightly higher resolution Sentinel data, Sentinel-2 data, um, which is a, a satellite sensor uh, launched uh, by the European Space Agency uh, uh, a number of years back, um, really allows us to very easily map, uh, for example, changes in or variations in, in vegetated and non-vegetated surfaces. And, and that's something that I make use of when I do practicals with, uh, with, with teachers, because as I already said, it can be very easily used to map, for example, green space. So I uh, set up a, a little practical where I let teachers map the percentage of green space in the environment of their, of their own school. Um, and I do that using the, using the Landsat data. So this makes use of the reflectance, particularly in the near-infrared light. Um, so the Landsat satellite collects information about a, a range of different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that includes red, green and blue, the visible light, but it also includes slightly longer wavelengths, which is the near-infrared uh, light. And that near-infrared light is particularly strongly reflected by vegetation. So if you can visualize that in an image, you can actually then also use it to quantify the uh, amount of vegetation that's present in a certain area. An exercise like that can be made even more interesting by also looking at changes over time, because, of course, the Landsat data is available uh, for different points in time. And for that reason, the same calculation can be done at different points in time. And as a result of that, you can then view how... Uh, perhaps the, the the amount of green space in a certain area has changed over time. Finally, could you explain how your work on river systems utilises remote sensing data at the University of Worcester? 
My own work uh, relates to uh, submerged environments, which makes things a little bit more complicated because, um, as I mentioned, uh, the remote sensing makes use of uh, the reflectance of light from from a target, from your target. Um, so that could be incoming light from the sun or that can be radiation sent out by a sensor such as radar or, or uh, laser radiation. That, that radiation interacts with your target and that reflects back from the target to, to the sensor. And that's what the sensor then picks up. However, when you're looking at targets underwater, submerged targets, it suddenly becomes more complicated because the radiation, both the incoming radiation and the radiation after it has interacted with your target, uh, will be to some ex extent absorbed by the water. Particularly wavelengths, uh, radiation wavelengths slightly longer than the visible light, such as near infrared and shortwave infrared, are very strongly absorbed by water. And so, as a result of that, uh, they are not necessarily overly useful for um, remote sensing and to obtain information from your target. Because I was interested in submerged vegetation species, and because near infrared is particularly useful to look at vegetation and look at variations in vegetation and different identify different vegetation species, I needed to look at other ways of doing that because the near-infrared is strongly absorbed by water. So for that reason, it's not so easy to use that uh, for submerged environments. And for that reason, I started thinking at other ways of interpreting the images because me as a person, I can still see that there are differences between the different submerged vegetation types. So we're, we're talking uh, macroalgae here, such as um, ranunculus, water crow, yeah, water crow foot, and those different uh, submerged species to, okay, not in very high detail, but to a large extent you can, by just looking at them, you can identify uh, what, sort of, what sort of vegetation is there. So I was wondering, okay, how can we do that automatically? So clearly, the spectral reflectance is, is not necessarily of very much use, although visible light is still still useful. We can still differentiate between uh, green plants and, and red, red, more reddish colored plants. Uh, but, OK, what, what do we humans use as um, means to identify the different plant species? And another, OK, that's more the shapes, the shape of the plant, uh, the different sort of texture that you see in the plant, uh, particular shape of leaves, particular shape of stems, particular variation in colours between the stem and the leaves. Those are the, the things that allow us to, to visually uh, identify the different uh, submerged vegetation species quite quickly. So at the time I started thinking about that, uh, a, a new, newer uh, way of image analysis became uh, more popular, which is called object-based image analysis, where you actually include that kind of information about the shape of the features that you're looking at and the context, how features uh, relate to each other in space, to include that in your image analysis, because that's what we humans do. We don't just look at the colors. We don't just look at how much green and how much red light is reflected from the surface. No, we also look at uh, where in the image is that green and that red light uh, what are the shapes of the things we look at so object-based image analysis allows us to include that kind of additional information besides the spectral information in the image analysis and and that seemed to be very useful for submerged aquatic vegetation and so that's something I have been looking at myself and uh, I've particularly applied that to to chalk streams here in the UK where the water is of course very clear and uh, there is quite a large diversity in, in uh, vegetation species presence as well. And um, that seemed to be quite a successful approach. 
for this kind of remote sensing, of course, you need uh, quite high resolution data, very high resolution data, actually. So below a centimeters resolution. So finer, you must be able to identify elements in the image that are smaller than a, than a centimeter on the ground. So you need uh, what's called very or ultra higher resolution image data for that. And uh, that can be collected either from drones. Um, I've used those to some extent, uh, but also particularly just uh, using um, cameras close to the ground. And I, I use a lot of uh, pole-based uh, aerial photography. Hopefully, this final example of my own work in combination with all the uh, examples that I've given previously, it sort of gives a a good overview of the full breadth of what's possible with remote sensing and, and the many different application techniques that there are. I think it's very important that more and more students will become familiar with it early on in their in their school careers because there's so much data out there and so much that can be done with it. Um, but yeah, you need to be aware of it quite early on um, so that you start thinking about how you might be able to use that data in, in perhaps your future workplace or your studies. And I think, yeah, you need to be introduced to it quite early on to, to be able to, um, to do so. And at the moment, uh, most students only get introduced to that maybe perhaps in their second or third year in university. And by that time, it might be a little bit late to learn to make use of it um, in, in the best way possible. So that reason, I really hope that more and more school teachers, secondary school teachers specifically, um, but maybe we should even start in primary school with us, that they start making use of, of satellite data in their teaching. And hopefully my overview has contributed to that. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free, School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.